Welcome to the podcast from Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and meet with you all. And I love catching up with Andrew and Christy and others here who I know uh, very well from uh, years gone by. It is disturbing that your pastor barracks for New South Wales. I just got to tell you, that is very, that is very disturbing. And uh, I hope he gets his just desserts this week, so that'd be good. <laughs> hey, I know you're in a in a series looking at one another, that one another commands or requests or or questions in the scriptures loving one another and honouring one another and bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. Today we come across one that I think is as crucial as any and it's the one called forgive one another. How do you forgive one another? What does that really mean? It's, it's more than a concept. It's more than a Christian idea. It's got to be an action and a reality that impacts our life. And we're going to try and unpack that a little bit today and look at, I think, some of the questions that, that matter. So important because we live in a broken, uh, depleted world where forgiveness is not just nice, but it's required and is so crucial. Um, in August 1974, um, an event happened in the credit bank of Sweden. It's in the main square of, of Sweden. And a man by the name of Jan Erik Olsen rolled into the bank with a submachine gun under his coat and started shooting at the, st- at the sky and shouting, the party's just begun. And as he did that, he was going to plan to rob the bank, get in, get out quickly and and race away. But things didn't go well for him. And he actually ended up taking four people hostage, four bank workers, three ladies and a guy took hostage in in the credit bank of of Sweden. And um, it was one of those situations where nobody expected it to happen. And and as as you would imagine, and but over there was there for five days. And over those days, something happened that was quite phenomenal. That uh, these people who were now hostages started to develop an affection um, and an affiliation with their captors, their abductors. <clears throat> he said he was on his own to start with, but he said a, a degree of or a reason for letting the hostages go would be if he could get three million kroner if he could get um, one of his associates, a man by the name of Clark Olufsen, released from jail, and if they would put a fully fueled Ford Mustang out the front so he can get away. That was part of his demands. But So they did some of that, but they'd let Olufsen go and join him in the bank. They promised him the Kroners would be there, and they actually got the Mustang together, but they, they still didn't come out for five days. After day two, the people who were the hostages started calling their abductors by name, first name. It was kind of an event. And about the third or fourth day, one of the hostages rang up the Swedish Prime Minister called Olaf Palm because they'd heard that the police were going to rush the bank. And he pleaded with the... the, uh, Prime Minister, please don't let the police come in because we're more fearful of what the police might do than what our abductors would do to us. They've been very kind, very good to us. After five days, the police came in with tear gas, tear gas and, they, and they sort of forced people out and the people, the 
abductors finally relented and gave up. And the police said, we want the hostages to come out first and then the two men, Olsen and Olufsen, to come out after that. But the hostages got together and said, no, we want them to go out first because we're fearful that if we go out first, you'll shoot them. Olsen was given 10 years for uh, armed robbery, uh, a very light sentence, and because none of those hostages would testify against him. They visited him in prison and one of the, in fact, he married one of the, not one of the hostages, but someone who actually came along with them and visited him in prison, wrote to him. He married one of those people. This phenomenon has been called the Stockholm Syndrome. It's where you develop an affection, an affiliation with what's designed to harm you. And as people who, who follow Jesus, we've got to take notice of this because if we're really honest in the broken world in which we live, we develop an affection with things that really harm us. That's why forgiveness is really important. We develop an affection with sin. We develop an affection with offence. We develop an affection with hurt. We develop an affection with being a victim. We develop an affection with just, you know, being the person who is always offended against or the person who offends others. There's something about that that it's not good for us, but we develop an affection for it. We develop a love for it. There's something in this brokenness of this world and the brokenness of us where we kind of take on board the, the syndrome, the Stockholm Syndrome of life. That's why forgiveness is absolutely crucial because if it's left to its own devices, we'll have pockets of resentment and hurt and brokenness that continue and grow and flourish, not just in our lives, but in our world. We see it all around us. So I want you to think about today, how do we deal with this thing called forgiveness? And how much does it impact me personally and us personally? I want to read to you some scripture. It's it's a scripture that reminds us again the unmistakable connection that exists between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of one another. It's an unmistakable, it's not separated. It's, it's, it's an unmistakable connection. We, we even say it when we, when we recite the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as those forgive us, who, as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's a, there's a connection there. It's a big forgiveness picture. And I want to read to you from a story in Matthew 18 where uh, Peter comes and asks God the question, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Should I do it seven times? But before that happens, it actually talks about the fact that if a brother sins against you, these are the actions you should take. And between that bit and the bit I'm going to read to you, Jesus says something fascinating. He says what you Bind on earth, you bind in heaven. And what you loose on earth, you loose on heaven. In other words, there's something deeply connected between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of one another. What you bind on earth, if you bind people, this is talking about forgiveness. It's right in the middle of those two passages. If you bind people up, uh, there'll be a binding in heaven. If you loose people up, if you free people up, there'll be a freeing in them. There's something deep about that. Here's the question. Here's the, here's the scripture. Matthew chapter 18. 
And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, this is the story Jesus tells. Kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he'd begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. What an extraordinary thing. Extraordinary thing. The buying power today of 10,000 talents is over $10 million. That's what, the, that's what he owed. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. I don't know how you'd go if you owed someone 10 million bucks and you just asked them to forgive you. They were going to take your family, take everything. It's an extraordinary act. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Denarii are day's wages. Let's say 30 grand today in buying power. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Very similar to what his, what his debtor said. And he would not, but went and threw him in the prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he'd called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant? Yet as I had pity on you. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. This is a, a story about the comparison of the gravity that exists in this story. $10 million plus, as opposed to say about 30 grand, which is enough in itself, and it's a story that, again, re-emphasises this incredible connection between the master's forgiveness and the servant's forgiveness. And you can't but see that connection. So how do we navigate that? It's, it's not easy. How do we navigate this thing called forgiveness? How many of you, I'm not asking you to put your hands up, but how many of you have been wronged by physical hurt? How many of you have been wronged by emotional hurt, emotional pain? How many of you have been robbed by a lingering hurt, something that just continues on in your life? It just seems to go on and on and on. How many of you have been hurt by an oppressive hurt? Whatever it might look like, whatever it might be. At the same time, how many of us have hurt other people? How many have hurt other people physically? or emotionally, or lingeringly, or oppressively. How many of us have done that? So it's not just one-sided, this deal. It's two-sided. What about, what do we do about it? How do we navigate it? What question does it raise in our mind? I want us to look at a couple of those this morning and make a couple of statements. First one I want to say is this, forgiveness is more than you think. We tend to think that forgiveness is a simple thing 
It's just something we do. We're Christians, we should do that. That's what we should do. And, and, and we kind of think it's a simple thing. God told us to forgive, so I'll just make a choice to forgive, which sounds great, except the next time you've chosen to forgive someone, the next time you see that person, you wonder why feelings of regret and anger and resentment still, still well up within you, even though you've chosen to forgive, because it's more than a choice. It's more than one-dimensional. It's not just, I made a choice to forgive, therefore I've forgiven. That's the starting point. But there's another dimension to this. There's another dimension to forgiveness. The first one is instantaneous. You sometimes, you make a choice. The second one takes some time. And the second aspect of forgiveness is this, that you surrender the right to get even. You choose to forgive. That's an instantaneous thing. You make a choice to do that. But then you surrender the right to get even. And that takes time. It takes time to work through that hurt. It takes time to work through that pain. It takes time to see that person in a different light. It does do that. It does make that second dimension. I want to tell you a true story. It's perhaps one of the most amazing church services I've ever been in. And I was sitting in a church. It was the, a week before the 20th commemoration of the Rwandan genocide where uh, they were recognising that in 1994, about 800,000 people were slaughtered in 100 days because of a tribal fight. Hutu tribe and the Tutsi tribe. In this particular case, it was the Hutus overpowering Tutsis and slaughtering them. It wasn't not before that. It was sometimes different, but that's the way it was then. And I was in this church service and it was an Anglican church. I met Pastor Francis, who was the pastor. I was with a team of people. And he said to me, look, during the service, would you be able to um, read the Scriptures and would you be able to introduce me to your team? I said, sure, love to do that. Church service started very much like yours, a few, few songs of worship and praise. And, and he gave some announcements. He said, would you read the Scriptures? I did and introduced my team. And then this happened. He said, today we're going to pray for Christopher. I have a photo there of Christopher. I think you'll, you'll see it come up. A bit hard to see. He said, we want to pray for Christopher and his wife, Christina, who wasn't there. Christopher was the sound man. He was sitting over the side of the building with a little four-channel mixer, mixer connected to a battery, car battery. Very different than probably you've got. <laughs> he got Chris, Christopher up. He said, we're going to pray for Christopher because this week... Um, the person who murdered Christina's parents confessed 20 years later and told the authorities where he had buried her parents. He'd thrown them down a pit latrine, told them where it was. And Pastor Francis, this week, we are going as a church, like you, like think about it, about the same size church actually. We're going as a church on Thursday morning to retrieve the remains of Christina's parents and we're going to give them a proper burial. And then he said this, we're going to pray for Christopher now. Tim, would you help me pray? I'm a, I'm a blubbering mess. So I, I said, but yeah, you know, okay. Fortunately, he prayed. I didn't have to say anything. We're standing up the front praying for Christopher and his wife, Christina, for this Thursday coming. And uh, I did one of those things you're not supposed to do when you pray. You open your eyes, you know, it's illegal. And uh, so I opened my eyes and, and, and 
Tears are running down Christopher's face. Tears are running down my face. Pastor Francis is praying a beautiful prayer. And we went on, the service went on like that's an almost a normal event. After the service, I found out the backstory. Christopher and his wife, Christopher was a Hutu, his wife a Tutsis. So before they even came together to get married, they had to work through this thing called forgiveness. They had to work it through. It wasn't just a choice. It was a surrendering the right to get even. You see, natural law says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Supernatural forgiveness says I surrender that right. Because you have to claim it first because you can't surrender what you don't own. You have to claim the right to get even before you surrender it, which sounds a bit weird for us. Forgiveness is twofold. It's making a choice, but it's surrendering the right to get even. That takes some time. That's instantaneous. That takes some time. We need to understand that. Second thought I have and I want to share with you is that forgiveness is healing on both sides. Forgiveness is very healing. Very healing. My wife, Chris, who's... uh, We're just about to celebrate 47 years of marriage, which is very exciting. I'm very excited about that. And, uh, but she has a great relationship with her dad. Her dad's 93 and uh, a great relationship with that, but it wasn't always that way. In her older teenage years, it was quite tumultuous at home for all sorts of reasons. And there was probably some faults. I'm sure there were some faults on both sides and Chris would say that. So she moved out of home very early and, then after a couple of years we were married, we were married after a couple of years we became Christians and Chris had a conviction that, that she should write to her dad and con- tell him how she was sorry about the things that she had been a part of and her part in this tumultuous relationship. She just felt the need to write to her dad and I think there was a, I'm sure she would say, there was a, a hope in there that he would write back the same. He'd just write back and say, you know, you're forgiven and um, here's what I did. I'm sorry. Ask your forgiveness. Well, she wrote a letter and it was a beautiful letter to her dad and he never wrote back. So it raises the question to me, um, for forgiveness to happen, does there have to be a prerequisite of confession? I mean, does somebody have to say, I wronged you before you forgive them? Well, if you follow the definition of choice and surrendering the right to get even, the answer is no. Someone may never acknowledge wrong to you. Someone may never acknowledge hurt to you. But if you carry that unforgiveness and resentment because they haven't said sorry and they should jolly will do, it impacts you wrongly. There is healing in forgiving whether someone else says it or not. There's healing in forgiving, forgiveness whether somebody else acknowledges their part in your offence or your hurt or not. Don't wait. Start the process. Make the choice. Start the journey. That's really important. Healing is healing for the forgiver. I'll tell you the story or for the person being offended. 
but it's healing for the other side. I remember a time probably uh, 10, 12, 10, 11 years ago now, it was not long after I finished in my ministry at Gateway and I had a young man who wanted to come and see me and have a cup of coffee with me and I said, sure, I'd love to do that. And he came along and as part of the conversation, I could take you to the coffee shop and the table we sat at. Part of the conversation, look, I wanted to have a coffee with you because when you were here, not long before you left, I deceived you badly and told you a lie. And I'm really sorry. Really sorry. It was a fairly, not a casual, but a fairly, you know, natural conversation. And I heard his story and I looked at him across the table and I said, mate, I want you to know I forgive you. At that point in time, he broke down extraordinarily. He said, I've never heard anybody say those words to me before. No one has ever said, I forgive you. So I just sat in the coffee table and said, I forgive you. And he just broke down and sobbed uncontrollably for a while in a coffee shop. It's a bit embarrassing, but, but he just broke down. See, it's not just healing for the person who's been offended against. It's also healing for the person who has offended to hear those words. It's bigger than you think and it's more than you think and it's healing on both sides. I want to say this. Sometimes the hardest person to forgive is you. You forgiving yourself is the hardest. You can sometimes forgive someone who's done something to you. They were stupid. They were dumb. It was ridiculous. But you know what? It's part of life. When you do it yourself, it's not quite that easy sometimes. Sometimes you're the hardest person to forgive yourself. It's very, very difficult to do that. In, 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 in our brokenness, we all do stuff that's stupid. But sometimes it gets into our mind, how could I be so stupid? And you live with brokenness, you live with shame, you live with humiliation of all that you've done and you have trouble forgiving yourself. You, you don't want somebody else saying, I forgive you. And they might do that and you might be free in someone else's eyes, but you yourself, you struggle to forgive yourself. It's one of the hardest things to do. When Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. Love your neighbour as yourself. At that point in time, you don't love yourself very much at all. And that becomes very difficult to love God and your neighbour, if that's the case. You see, sometimes the hardest people to forgive is yourself. And we have to be able to do that. Surrender the right to get even with you. Bring that shame and that brokenness and that natural imperfection that we live with to God daily and regularly. It's important to do that. God forgives and God forgives you. Sometimes you can hear God forgives, but you don't hear God forgives you. God forgives you completely. He convicts you totally and he forgives you unqualifiedly. That's who he is. That's his nature. He's no option but that. That's who God is. Paul says to the Ephesian church, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour 
and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Remember I said at the beginning, there's this incredible connection between God's forgiveness of you and your forgiveness of others. He says this, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. He has forgiven you totally. He's forgiven you completely. Forgive one another in the same way. There's, a, uh, there's an amazing story in the Scriptures. You know it very well. It's a story that appears in John chapter 8. It's a story that kind of holds something in tension for Jesus that he navigates through perfectly, much better than we could. It's a story of a woman caught in adultery. And not just caught in adultery, but caught, the Scriptures say, in the act of adultery. It's an extraordinary story. And it's a trap set for Jesus. It's the trap between mercy and morality. It's a trap, it's a situation, it's a grey area you and I are going to face for the rest of our lives. How merciful should I be? And if I'm that merciful, will I compromise the moral stand God makes once for me? Or if I'm too tough on the moral stand, will I be merciful? It's a, it's, a, it's a dilemma for us and it's the dilemma Jesus faced and these Pharisees set for him right at the beginning. Let me read you some of that story from John chapter 8. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to her teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. You've got to get that Jesus is teaching everyone and all of a sudden a group of religious heavies come up and put this woman in the midst, caught in the very act. You think of the humiliation. You think of where's the bloke. This is a setup. Caught in the very act of adultery. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? This is the trap. You're supposed to be Jesus, the lover of people. But the morality said she should be stoned. What do you say? And they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Fantastic. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he was without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus somehow able to bring together non-condemnation and moral rightness in the same, perfectly. He wrote on the stone, you know, I, I kind of, we all figure, what did Jesus write in the stone? We think, we think it's sand. It's actually stone on the ground. 
It's cobbled stone if you've ever been there and seen those streets where Jesus would have been standing talking to the Pharisees. I actually think that as he wrote down and put his finger on the stone, it was just to remind the Pharisees that one time before, God wrote in stone. And I think as he did that, they'd be reminded, wow, he's actually saying to them, I'm the God who wrote in stone. This is a statement to the Pharisees. It doesn't matter what, what he wrote there. It's a statement that the finger of God wrote in stone as it had once before. They would know about very carefully. But Jesus is able to master this place of non-condemnation but total righteousness at the same time. And that's, that's a dilemma you will have throughout your life. You get an invitation from someone you love very much who's getting married but you don't approve of the marriage. Do you go or do you not? See, I love the person's mercy, but I don't, want to, I don't want to give the impression I stand for unrighteousness. What do you do? That's, that's the question you and I are going to be faced with, continue throughout our lives, and we should be faced with it. It's grey in a broken world. Everything in a broken world is not black and white. It's grey sometimes. What do you do with that? Jesus navigated this Perfectly. We don't always. Sometimes we err on the, on the, on the uh, um, mercy side. Sometimes we err on the moral stand-up side. He's able to keep them both together. That's the challenge of forgiveness. That's the challenge to do this. It's really important that we're able to, to grasp that. I've had people, I've had a father say to me more than once, um, I, my daughter and soon-to-be son-in-law are going to get married, but because they were in this relationship before they got married, I can't go to the wedding because if I go, I'll be condemning the wedding, commending the wedding. In other words, they've sort of gone on their moral rightness side. I've had to say to a number of dads, actually, more than I'd like, three years' time, you're going to really regret you didn't show mercy at the same time. People know where you stand, show mercy. You could perhaps get on the other side where you just show so much mercy, you forget a moral stand. This is crucial area of being able to forgive, being able to choose. And then the very very last part of this, at this scripture, it says, then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You know, we talk about Jesus, the light of the world. We just sometimes talk about it very nebulously, that he's like a lamp or a torch or a brightness or a radiance in some sort of mystical way. Jesus tells you how he's the light of the world. It's part of the story. Being able to hold together the mercy of God and the moral righteousness of God is being a light. That's the context of him saying, I'm the light of the world. It's not just some unrelated scripture somewhere. It's, I'm the light of the world. I'm able to hold together the non-condemnation at the same time, the moral uprightness of God. Extraordinary statement. And he says, 
You, when you follow me, you walk in darkness. When you do the same thing, when you're able to show the mercy of God at the same time not compromising the truths about God, when you're able to do that, you also will be the light of the world. It's not just saying, well, you're, you're a nice shiner shining and if you follow Jesus, you'll be shining as well. No, 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 no. There's got to be some, some action to this. He's the light of the world because, we, because he, he's able to hold together this glorious mercy, forgiveness, freedom. At the same time, hold moral righteousness and truth in perfect harmony. And if you're walking in the same way, you too will be the light to this broken, sinful, sometimes awful world. That's what he says. The light of the world. I trust you've experienced the forgiveness of God in its totality because it is the most liberating of experiences and life generators that there is. There is nothing more life generating than knowing that God has forgiven my brokenness, past, present and future. And in this world, I will expect to be broken again. I'll expect to be offended against. I'll expect to be offending others. One of the very valuable things that I've discovered myself more lately than I would have liked in my years is to wake up in the morning and say to God, God, today I'm going to choose an unoffendable heart because there's so many things in your world and my world that can offend me. And so when you've experienced the forgiveness of God fully and totally, you will know that freedom and that life. And I want to ask you this morning, have you experienced it to that fullness? And are you living it out in that light? Are you living it out in that beautiful blend between mercy, forgiveness and right living, righteousness? Today, I want to invite you, if that's not the case, to, to receive the full forgiveness of God. In a moment, we're going to take communion. I'm going to read some scripture before we do that and just for you to reflect on that. But I want to say this. If, if today you are come to that place where you're saying, I, I need to know the full forgiveness of God and I haven't done it yet. Or I need to forgive others and I haven't done that yet. Today would be no better day than to start. To start today. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and everybody who walks through our doors is welcome. If you'd like to connect with us, please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au to find out more.